0: We ready? Luke. We're going to Luke. That's where we've been. We don't plan things this well, um, but we are right at the sign of Jonah. Luke 11, 29 and 30, two verses, but also Jonah 2. Jonah 2, if you have a Bible like mine, is on 654, or you can just listen to it. Luke chapter 11, again, it's just two verses, uh, it's found in 736. Uh, We love to stand for the reading of God's Word, so please stand. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was the sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. It's a little bit of a riddle. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, let's go to Jonah chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said... In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. You listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current swirled over me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. And here's one of those great like buts in the scripture. But you brought my life up from the pit. You raised me. When my life was every way, I remembered the Lord. My prayer rose to you in your holy temple. Those who claim to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, but I, with song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice, will worship to you, for I have vowed to make good on what I vowed, salvation, salvation comes from the Lord. This is God's word, you can be seated. Well, it's just my opinion, but I think Jonah, besides the actual Easter story itself, may be... Uh, the best Easter story in the whole Bible Um, and hopefully after today you'll understand that a little bit more Um, our text starts with the crowds Uh, we've seen the crowds that gather around Jesus sometimes it's uh, as big as a crowd of 5,000 people and that was before this and it says the crowd is even increasing so I'm picturing thousands of people who are coming to Jesus and if you've noticed uh, as you read through Luke when Jesus gets a big crowd, sometimes he likes to drop a bomb. And he, he does this here. I mean, it's like he knows why they are coming to him. Which is why. Why are the crowds coming to him? The text tells us. Jesus, do another miracle for us. Do something spectacular. Showcase your power. Prove to us that you're the Messiah. Can't help but think of the irony of that. I mean, he's performing miracles almost every day, yet they have the audacity to ask for another miracle. But sometimes I wonder if we're any different. Recently, I was, I was thumbing through a magazine called Charisma, and I just noticed article after article after article around people getting healed because of their faith. Now, listen, I'm not against God healing people. Are you kidding? He's God. God can do what he wants, when he wants, however he wants to do it. But all the hype, all the spotlighting and the headlining, it it, it almost felt like it was creating this unfair and, and unbiblical expectation towards God and towards us, the people of God. And really, a whole element of the church today, it prides itself on signs and wonders. Because for many today, faith in God is actually measured by by these things, by miracles. Um, It's the way a person's faith is validated. And so people seek them, and they pray for them, and then they showcase them. And then sometimes they even have the audacity to say to those of us who don't seek miracles or who lack miracles, what's wrong with your faith? And while this has the appearance of spirituality, I mean, it looks good, it sounds good, it it, it feels good. But really, to me, I think it's just another expression of our me-centered, narcissistic culture. I mean, we are a a culture today that's obsessed with the spectacular and the sensational things that are attention-grabbing and things that exalt ourselves. Which is why I think so many Christians today are, are living for the spectacular and the sensational. Whether it's the next spiritual breakthrough, the next spiritual manifestation, the next spiritual experience, the next spiritual high. It, it, it's like a bunch of Christians who are like junkies just looking for their next spiritual fix. I'll be really honest. I've fallen prey to this. I have. I mean, it's seductive. It's promising, but... At the same time, it's so unrealistic. Because one of the things it does is it takes all the miracles of the Bible, and it makes them the norm for today. So that when I have problems, God is just going to part the waters. And when I get cancer, God, of course, is just going to heal me. And when something bad happens to me, God's just going to come in and fix it. And these unrealistic expectations, they can be devastating to a person's faith. That's why I think Jesus, he doesn't just call this bad or off track. He calls it wicked, evil. Look at verse 29. Because sign-seeking or, or seeking miracles, it, it can cause us to seek God not only for what he can do for us... But, but also for how it can make us feel. And, and, and furthermore, it doesn't let God be God because it only allows God to be attached to those things that are amazing and spectacular and sensational. And that God can't be anything less than that. God can't just be attached to something that's normal. And again, I think this all sounds good, but think about the pressure it places on you. Well, if God's only attached to the spectacular and the sensational, then that means, you better be sensational and spectacular, or God isn't attached to you. Or our lives, like if our lives aren't sensational and spectacular, then God's, where is he? Some of you know that um, Kara Tibbetts is this former student of my, my youth ministry who after uh, uh, years, and then especially the last year, has, has battled cancer. And um, about a week and a half ago, she lost that battle. And, and here she is <laughs> with her husband, who's a pastor who started a church two years ago. And there are four little kids, all of them under the age of 10. Where's the sign and the wonder? Where is it? I mean, where, where, where does cancer, someone dying of cancer, fit into that? Ironically, her blog, which God has used to bring countless numbers to himself, In fact, when I went out and visited her, her brother came to know Christ through her journey with cancer. People from as far as England had to come visit her because they read her blog about her faith in Christ through her cancer and came to Christ as a result. Her blog is called Mundane Faithfulness. Because guess what? That's what life is. Oftentimes life simply mundane, very little of life is sensational and spectacular, and sometimes life is sprinkled with trials and tribulations and hurts and pains and the life of faith is knowing that God is Lord over all of it he 's not just Lord over the, the miracles or the spectacular or the sensational. But he's he's Lord over the mundane. He's Lord over the suffering. He's Lord over the struggle. He's not just Lord over it, but he's in it. He's in it. He's in the unspectacular. He's in the normal. He's in mundane living. He's in trials and tribulations. He's especially in trials and tribulations. And see, I think this is why Jesus not only labels this kind of spiritual, spirituality evil, he, he calls it adulterous. Look at verse 29. And adulterous is, is another word for faithlessness or unfaith. How can this be unfaith? Well, think about it. It's a weak faith that needs to be constantly validated through the miracle. Or where God has to be validated through the miracle as if the Lord of the universe needs validation. Think about that. In fact, when you look at all the greats of the Bible, I mean, starting with Abraham. Abraham didn't get a life of miracles, but, but a life of barrenness. And he asked God's asking him to trust him in the barrenness. Because that's what biblical faith is. As Eugene Peterson has said it so well, it's a long Faithful obedience in the same direction. That's why I don't want a a church of miracle seekers and sign seekers. I want a church of Christ followers who can say in all circumstances, Jesus, you are enough, your word is enough, and your grace is enough. Because that's faith. It's biblical faith. Faith. In fact, just speaking of science and wonders, man, wasn't it amazing that the sun came up today? And it's going to set? And for the next month, every single day, we get to look outside and watch a torment creation come to life? And you sit there right now, and how many of you are thinking about breathing? Breathing? But every breath you and I take is a sign and wonder from the living God. Now Jesus does say, he says, I will give you one sign. You guys want a sign? I'll give you a sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. In fact, I think Jesus wants to uh, lay the sign of Jonah next to their sign seeking because their sign seeking couldn't be more opposite than the sign of Jonah. Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Now, here's the deal. Probably very few of us know what the sign of Jonah is, but in Jesus' day, when Jesus said, I'll give you the sign of Jonah, his audience knew exactly what he was talking about. They didn't have to, like, hey, Jesus, could you explain that to us? They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. And I I think this is where we need to know the book of Jonah. And and the book of Jonah may be one of the most popular stories in the whole Bible. And yet it's also, I think, one of the most misunderstood. So uh, to understand the sign of Jonah, we need to understand the book of Jonah. And I need to then briefly recap the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah really begins with God saying to this prophet Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go. I want you to go to the nations. I want you to go to Nineveh. And I want you to call this whole pagan city to repentance. By the way, does anybody know where biblical Nineveh is today or what it's called? Sweet, you're going to learn something. Mosul, in Iraq. In fact, the uh, the, the burial site of Jonah, or the supposed burial site, is still there. Now what's amazing to me is that when our team went to Jordan recently, there were Christians from Mosul in Jordan. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a second. Maybe this goes all the way back to Jonah's faithfulness. You have a whole lineage. And why were they in Jordan? Because ISIS came in. ISIS, that was one of the first cities they took over. And for this particular family, they literally came in the house, took the sword out and said, you leave, this is our house, or you die right now. They left. Clothes in the back. That's all they had. So this almost makes current events much like the days of Jonah. Jonah, go to Nineveh. It'd be like, hey, God, God's saying to me, hey, Rod, go to Mosul and preach the gospel to Isis. How good does that sound? <laughs> and see, we, we, at this part in the Jonah story, just think Jonah refuses to go because of fear. He, he's scared he's going to get persecuted or maybe put to death. or or maybe the fear of failure. But that's not the case. And we realize at the end of Jonah that Jonah refuses to go to Nineveh for what reason? Hate. In fact, Jonah's devastated when this great city repents and God showers them with his grace and compassion. But when God calls him to go out of hate, Jonah runs from God and he finds himself in a boat on the Mediterranean Sea, with a bunch of sailors, and they're in a storm, and the sailors are afraid for their lives. They wake Jonah. They say, Jonah, look, we're going to die. Jonah says, easy solution to this problem. Take me, throw me overboard, and the sea will be calm. And that's what they do. And the storm is stilled. And see, now we're stepping into the sign of Jonah, because you have a man who's willing to perish be or, or die for the salvation of the many. In fact, if you've, if you've read the Gospels closely and you've seen the story of Jesus in the boat on a storm, you realize all the, the similarities with the Jonah story. Both stories include a boat, uh, both stories include some sailors, both stories include a storm. Even the descriptions of the storm are almost word for word the same. Both story, stories have Jesus and Jonah asleep down under. Both stories, the sailors have to wake up the sleeper and say, we're going to die. Both stories, there's a miraculous divine intervention from God where the sea is calm. Both sailors, after the sea is calm, are even more afraid than they were during the storm. Two almost identical stories, but there's one difference. Jesus just speaks to the storm, basically says, shut up. And it's calm. Jonah has to plunge himself into the storm. In fact, right before Jonah takes the plunge, he essentially says to the sailors, he says, guys, if I go under, you guys are going to survive. If I die, you live. So guys, throw me into the abyss and you're going to live. Throw me into the sea. And they did, and the sailors that day were saved because Jonah wasn't. Now, Jesus comes nowhere near this kind of action. Or does he? Did Jesus, like Jonah, throw himself into the sea? Did he throw himself into the abyss? Think about Good Friday. Let me add another piece to this while you're thinking about this. In fact, this is where I have to confess that in all my years of studying uh, the book of Jonah, I just I gloss over chapter 2. Chapter 2 isn't story. It's, 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 it's poetry. I like story. So I just kind of skipped chapter 2. But this week, I studied chapter 2, and I didn't just study it like I normally do poetically, but I studied it literally. And verse 1 of chapter 2 says, deep in the realm of the dead. The word in Hebrew is sheol. Sheol is their word for the grave. It's the place where, where they believe that you would go when you died to await God's judgment. So according to Jewish interpretation of Jonah, which goes all the way back to Jesus, Jonah wasn't just in the belly of a great fish. He died. He went to the grave. Verse 5 of Jonah 2 emphatically states that the waves surrounded him and in the original language even took his life. Then you get to verse 6. No longer is Jonah just talking about now being in the waters or being in a fish but now he's talking about literally being in the earth and what he's describing is sheol he says it barred me in forever in other words he's buried he's entombed in the earth and we spend all this time trying to figure out like now how did jonah stay alive for 3 days in that in that fish but a careful reading of jonah 2 really lets us know jonah was dead he was entombed. And then you get to verse 6. The second part. You, oh God, raise my life up from the pit. Pit is another word in, in, in the Hebrew language. It often refers to death. Raised up is the word for resurrected. You, oh God, resurrected me. This is the sign of Jonah Jonah was dead and buried and on the third day God raised him which is why Jesus says guys look you guys want a sign okay I will give you the sign of Jonah in fact in another place he he elaborates on this further he says just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish so it will be with the son of man later Jesus will also say hey folks one greater than Jonah is here I'm the true Jonah, and he meant this. And what he meant by this is that someday I'm going to calm all storms. Still, always I'm going to destroy all destruction. I'm going to break brokenness forever. I'm going to kill death. I'm going to bring an end to everything that plagues us. And if you believe that hope. Your next question better be, how's he going to do that? Think about your life right now, the storms you're in right now. How's God going to do that? I'm going to tell you something. It wasn't enough for Jesus to just rebuke the storm for the same reason he can't just look at our storms and, and, and simply say, peace be Still, signs and wonders do not save. They cannot save. So we as Christians need to stop looking to them because Paul says Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the power of God for salvation. And sign-seeking can just become another diversion from the power of Christ crucified. Because like Jonah, for Jesus to defeat the storm, he needs to plunge himself into the storm. He needs to swallow, be swallowed up by it as our representative, as our substitute, as the person who's, who's, who's doing it for us. And that's what Good Friday is. The cross is, is, is Jesus saying to the Father, Father, throw me in. I'll go into the raging sea in their place. And this is what God does. God hurls the ultimate storm upon Jesus. And it's more than just even the storm of death. But it's the curse. It's, it's all God's damnable anger for sin. It's even hell itself. It's all hurled upon Jesus. It engulfed him. It swallowed him up. And in being swallowed up by it, Jesus swallowed it. This is how he brings calm. This is how he brings rest. This is how he brings peace. This is how he brings perfect shalom to everything that plagues us, even death. As John Owen put it so well, he said, the death of death is in the death of Christ which is why today we can join Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and say, death has been swallowed up. It's been completely swallowed up. And here's what this means for us. Practically. First, if you really believe this, If you really believe that that Jesus took your place, how can you ever look at God and say, God, you don't care about me. You don't love me. The Lord of the universe took your place. He took the ultimate storm for you so that you could have peace with God. What other God is going to do this for you? What other person could even do this for you? What other God can save you from this kind of storm? And he did it because he loves us, because he cares for us. While we we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, and if you and I know this right now, that God did not abandon us in the ultimate storm, then how do we think that when we look at all our little storms that we're in right now, that he's going to abandon us in those places? And see, I don't think Christians sometimes understand uh, this resource that we have in the gospel. The gospel really gives us the power to handle anything in life. Why do you think Kara could die so well? Why in the midst of pain and and, and sadness and tragedy do they have hope today? And is her husband standing before their congregation preaching the resurrection of Christ? Not because he has to, but with joy in his heart. Right now all of us should be looking at our storms in light of the ultimate storm because just as Jesus brought peace and perfect calm to the ultimate storm we can be confident that God will bring peace to all our little storms second what does this mean for us today I love how Jonah ends his prayer as he's dying how does he end it salvation Belongs to the Lord. I could make an argument that that is the central message of the whole Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. When you look at the book of Jonah, there's a lot of salvation taking place. First the sailors, sailors experience salvation. Then Jonah experiences salvation. Then a whole wicked city, Nineveh, experiences salvation. And let me ask, what did those sailors do? To earn their salvation. What did Nineveh do to earn God's salvation? Look at Jonah in this book. He's a punk. What did he do to earn salvation? Salvation doesn't belong to us. You and I, we cannot save ourselves We're not good enough. We're not spiritual enough. It's nothing that we are capable of. I think we know this, but then again, I think we don't. Because look at us today, people, Christians. People look at us and see us sometimes as the most fretting, anxious, uptight people on the face of the earth. Why is this? I think at the root of it, we're still trying to save ourselves. We still think it's all about us. It's all about how good I need to be, how well I need to perform. It's about me. Listen, Christians. Salvation doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. You can relax at ease. It's not about you. It's not what we do and offer God. There's only one hero in the Bible. There's one Jesus. Man, it's freedom. See, that person who just said hallelujah, this is what I know. She doesn't just know it up here in her head. The penny has dropped. Like in a Coke machine, you shake that thing, and all of a sudden, boom, it goes into the heart. (laughs) Has it dropped for you? I'll end with Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon writes this. It's, it's, it's entitled, Look Unto Jesus. He said, if ever the Holy Spirit, he said, it is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self and to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite. He is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. This is what Satan does says Spurgeon. He says, your sins are too great for forgiveness. And you have no faith. And you do not repent enough. And you'll never be able to continue to the end. And the, and the joy that you have of a Christian, are you kidding me? You don't have near enough joy. And he says, your, your hold on Christ, it's, it's, it's shaky. Spurgeon said, all these are thoughts about self, and we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit does the work of turning our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing And that Christ is all in all. And so Spurgeon says, remember therefore, it's not thy hold on Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It's not thy joy in Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It's not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It's Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, Look not so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. And look not to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of hope. And look not to your faith, but to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of your faith. He says we shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. Jesus did it. Be at ease. Rest.